The following presentation by Monument Capital Management, LLC, is intended for general information purposes only. Please listen to additional important disclosures at the end of this presentation. Welcome to the Off the Wall Podcast. A little bit Wall Street, a little bit off the wall. It's your go-to for unfiltered, straightforward wealth advice on topics that founders, business owners, and executives care about. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Armstrong and Jessica Gibbs from Monument Wealth Management. Hey, Dave, we're back. (laughs) Yes, we are back. End of the first quarter. It's actually the 4th of April, but we're going to pretend like it's 4.01 on March 31st and talk about first quarter 2023 performance and some thoughts from the asset management team. Yeah, we've got two really important guests, but I think if you're watching on video, you may also see a couple other guests in the background. So I should highlight for those of you who aren't watching this on video, in case you didn't know, we are doing these on YouTube now. So if you like video, go check that out. But you may see Blizzy in the background, and then you may also see I saw Lila, and then I don't know if Tyson's there too, but we got dog companions as always at Monument. Yeah, so if the doorbell rings, we may have some other audio participants. Exactly. But aside from the dogs, we also have back our favorite portfolio management team at Monument, Aaron and Nate. Welcome back. Hey, guys. Hey, everyone. All right. So start with the big market summary. What happened in Q1? Yeah. So this may sound surprising to people, but the S&P 500 actually returned right around 7.5% for the first quarter. And if you look back at some other periods of time, here's where I thought some return numbers were interesting. The S&P 500 is still 27.7% above the previous market peak of February 2022, so right before COVID, right? It's also 92.8% above the March 2020 market low, again, COVID. So while the recent bear market has certainly felt painful to everybody, and I'm not downplaying that, It can also be a function of just your timing perspectives, right? So if you're a long-term investor, you should be looking at saying like, I am 92.8% above the last market low. I'm 27.7% above the previous market high. And I know that most people were probably feeling pretty confident in February of 2020 at that last market high. So before that sell-off. So, you know, being 27.7% higher than that right now, if you're a long-term investor, kind of puts things into perspective, or at least a different perspective on things. So as of March 31st, 2023, the S&P 500 is still in fact about 14% off of that high of January 3rd, 2022. But it's also interesting to look back over the last 43 years, and JP Morgan does a really great job with this with their research team. There has been an average inter-year drop. So that means inside of each calendar year, on average, the market has pulled back 14.3% over those 43 years. So you can expect a pullback sometime in each calendar year of about that much. Of course, it's an average. But interestingly, of those 43 years, 32 of them have always ended up on December 31st with a positive calendar year return. So even in 2023, because we talked about that you know, 7.5% return, we have already seen an 8% drop. So kind of puts things into perspective again. It also highlights that volatility is not the same thing as risk. And I recently wrote a blog on that. We'll link it in the show notes. But make sure that you totally understand that there is a huge difference between risk and volatility. I feel like the news really tries to 
trick everybody into thinking that volatility is risk. And we at Monument don't share that opinion at all because we're not selling advertising. We're selling advice and unfiltered opinion and straightforward advice. That's what we sell. Plug for the messaging there. So just some quick sector performance review. The highest performing sectors of the S&P 500 for the first quarter were technology, up 21.8%, and then followed very closely by communication services at positive 20.5%. Now, conversely, the lowest performing sectors, energy down 4.7%, and then followed very closely by healthcare at minus 4.3, and then utilities at 3.2. So kind of interesting if you think, okay, the best performing sectors were tech and communication services, which remember is kind of synonymous with a lot of social media stuff. And then the lowest performing sectors were the defensive sectors of energy. I think healthcare can be considered defensive. Some people may argue with me on that. And utilities is definitely considered defensive. So what did we see in the first quarter, right? We saw all the stocks that got absolutely hammered in 2022 have a quarterly rebound. So right there, that signals to me that if you're an investor and you're evaluating your individual portfolio's performance against the S&P 500 for just the first quarter, and you are disappointed in your quarterly return, I will bet that you are not inappropriately or over-concentrated and or over-concentrated into those big tech names and social media companies that experience that massive sell-off through 2022. So in a weird way, golf clap, good for you. If you're awesome and you outperform the S&P 500 and you're totally psyched and you think you're a genius, I am going to lay dollars to donuts that you are massively overallocated to those high volatility and I would argue also kind of high risk individual securities that have been very, very popular over the past couple of years. And then I'll just kind of close with just saying like, hey, if you're an investor and you selected a strategy back a year, two years, even 10 years ago, and you've become unhappy with that, over the past year and you now want to change, my question would be like, what would you actually change into, right? Like if you were happy and you picked the strategy and it's not working, tell me what you'd be happy with right now. Cause it's probably, well, I want a strategy. It's going to be in those big Facebook, Amazon. That's the strategy I want. And I'm like, okay, great. If that's what you want, I can tell you what's going to happen to you. So anyway, just keep that in mind. And with that, that kind of concludes my quick market recap. We can get down to the weeds with everybody on some of the other stuff. Your mini rant. I mean, you kind of teed it up, but I'm in the mood for more good news. I don't want any more doom and gloom right now, or at least today. So Nate and Aaron, can you talk a little bit more about what performed well in Q1? I mean, I think Dave hit the nail kind of right on the head. It was those big tech names, right? It was the names that everyone had loved for years and years and years. And last year didn't get the same kind of love. Well, guess what? Came right back around. And it was kind of an interesting environment is what I'll say. As Dave said, these are high risk, high volatility stocks, I should say. But people plowed into them in a market where we're predicting recessions, where who knows what the Fed is going to do? Are they going to hike us in? In a weird way, people treated them almost like those defensive names that underperformed. So it was a very interesting kind of market to see. And it really took off in February. End of January, people decided, hey, it's time to put some risk back in your portfolio or volatility, I should say again. But really, it was still the macro environment hasn't changed a whole lot. We're still looking at what is going to happen. What are the unknowns with the Fed and the recession? But that doesn't stop stocks from having positive returns. Stocks are forward looking and tech is one of those sectors that does a great job at looking forward, I'll say. Nate, can you kind of explain, though, in light of because I think we've seen a lot of headlines about tech layoffs. So how does that kind of gel with what you're saying? 
So there has been a lot of layoffs in the tech sector specifically this year. And really, I think how that kind of plays in is it's a lower labor cost for these companies, right? So the companies that no longer had to care about their profits or their revenues and growth and showing that to investors, right? People were investing in these stocks, speculating they'll get to profitability one day. Well, now it's become about managing, you know, operational discipline, managing your labor costs. So while you're seeing the layoffs in the tech sector, in a weird kind of way, that's actually a positive for a lot of stocks because investors see it as they're reining in their costs and they're trying to manage their operations to be more efficient. Both are very important things if you're trying to have consistent and strong profit growth. So it's kind of an interesting one and two, right? You hear they're laying off people in mass amounts, but just because that's an economic negative, I'll argue, doesn't necessarily mean it's a negative for the stock. Yeah, I'll echo some of the things that Dave and Nate have already spoken to. U.S. large cap tech has been on a tear as of late. And the Qs, the NASDAQ QQQ ETF, that's sort of synonymous with U.S. large cap tech. It's actually just finished its best quarter since 2020, since coming out of COVID. So it's sort of been, I'll characterize it as a tractor beam, which sort of defies any logic, any gravity. In, in the same sense that SPY and the other S&P 500 large cap ETFs have been for people over the last several years. But I think that if you're sort of just a casual outside observer, it might be a little misleading for you because all you're seeing is, hey, I pull up a ticker of SPY or in this instance, QQQ, and I see that it's up. In fact, the Qs were up like 20% in the first quarter of of this year, which is is phenomenal given everything that's happened. But if you look under the hood a little bit, there's an issue with leadership and breadth. So Nate, you sort of spoke of some of the underlying economic things that are going on within tech, but I'm going to point to, this is a tweet that came uh, right at the end of the quarter, and it's from a research group called Susquehanna. And they, they wrote in a research note, they said, as of yesterday, so in essence, the end of, end of the quarter, you have Apple, NVIDIA, Microsoft, Facebook, Tesla, Amazon, Google, Salesforce, and AMD have contributed, and this isn't a typo, 160% uh, the S&P 500 gains to date this year, right? So that means that the S&P would have been negative in this instance without U.S. large cap tech stocks. And further, Apple, NVIDIA, and Microsoft have contributed 91% of the returns of the S&P year to date. So you've got very narrow leadership. So yes, U.S. large cap is up, U.S. large cap tech is up, but there's a handful of names that are really carrying the load. And there's another way to look at this. It's a bit more, more technical. And there are different ways of investing in indices, right? This is where it gets a little wonky and people don't always know what they're invested in. So the S&P 500 is what they call a market cap weighted index. So there's 500 companies, but they're not all equally weighted. The largest companies that basically have the largest market cap, they get the higher weighting and it's a de facto momentum index, right? So you can also square that up against what they call the equal weight S&P 500. So if you wanted to invest in S&P 500 stocks, but you didn't want to have those handful of companies at the top, you could do so in an equal weighted fashion. Well, there's been a pretty stark difference between the returns of the market cap weighted S&P and the equal weighted S&P that really started to assert themselves around the, the beginning middle of March. And you've got the S&P itself up about seven, seven and a half percent at the end of the quarter. And then the equal weighted version of the S&P is up 2% change. So that gets back to the fact that there's a very small number of companies that are really carrying the load right now. 
just two other things that caught my eye, kind of surprised a little bit. Dave, you had mentioned earlier in the podcast, JP Morgan Asset Management, I think, and they put out slides every quarter. It's from a really great piece they do called Guide to the Market. They actually cite there has been a potential end to U.S. outperformance vis-a-vis developed international stocks. And so all I mean there is over the last year or so, the MSCI EFA, which is a reminder for everyone, stands for Europe, the Austral, Asia, and the Far East. So think of it like S&P 500 counterparts outside the U.S. There's been about a year's worth of relative outperformance versus the S&P. And that's after basically 14 years of the S&P 500 outperforming EFA to the tune of about 277%. So don't know if that trend's going to continue or not, but there's definitely precedent out there for non-US stocks. And notice I'm not saying emerging market stocks, which we've trashed in various forms and fashions and blogs and podcasts over the last couple of years. Not talking about emerging markets here. I'm just talking about developed international. So that was a little surprising, kind of caught my eye a bit. Yeah, you shared a tweet last, I think it was last week or the week prior. It was definitely around the end of the quarter. I think it was the Carl Kittenina do you remember that, Aaron? That- yeah, that's actually the tweet that I was citing. Carl Quintanilla, he's either CNBC or, or Bloomberg, can't remember. But yeah, that was the tweet that he put out from Susquehanna, basically talking about U.S. large cap tech leadership. Right, right. When I saw that, I was like, whoa. I mean, that even caught me by surprise, just those combination of names and how the S&P would have been negative without them. So very interesting. But sorry, I didn't mean to get you off your track there. Nope. That was pretty much all I had. Again, I think you're sensing a theme here, U.S. large cap and U.S. large cap tech dominance for the first quarter. That's really what's been driving things here as of late. Right. Here's another theme. Don't assume that by mimicking what worked in the first quarter is going to get you outperformance in the second quarter too, because that never seems to happen. Right. And I think that's not only applicable to the equity markets, which we focused on, but also bond markets too, right? So last year, just to kind of circle to the other side of kind of the asset allocation, right? You always hear about stocks, but talking about bonds, bonds had a very eventful 2022 of underperformance. And what you saw in Q1 of 2023 is duration. So, you know, longer term bonds really outperform the shorter end and the blended parts of the market. And that's volatility inside the bond market too, as well, right? So you're not just seeing volatility in stocks, you're also seeing it in bonds with kind of similar themes, right? The underperformers of 2022 had a really strong Q1, both on the equity and kind of fixed income side. Yeah, well, we talked stocks and Nate, you just brought up bonds. I mean, as the financial planner of the group, I'm going to bring up cash because that's what I talk about with clients. I like to talk about what their cash needs. And and for me, I think one of the good things of Q1 continued to be how well some of these money market funds are performing. You know, we use one that's tied to treasuries and that you can get a yield that's above 4%. I think that was what continued I think was a good news continuing if you were keeping cash on the side for your tax bill or you have something major expense coming up in the next six, 12 months, that that is now a good place to park. And I think leading into my next question for you guys, I mean, for me, the biggest surprise was how many people we were talking to at Monument that still have cash parked in very, very low yielding bank savings account. So this is my little PSA that if you have money in a savings account, an emergency fund account, go check and see what what interest rate you're getting on that. And 
if it's below 1%, then there's definitely better opportunities out there for you. So that was my biggest surprise is how many people are still missing out on that. Yeah, we like to call it how to legally rob a bank. There you go. Yeah, that's your phrase. Yeah. All right. So that was my biggest surprise. What were your guys' biggest surprises of Q1? So semi-related, Jessica, kind of what you were talking about was, I mean, I don't know how we don't talk about what they're calling the banking crisis. And I love when the word crisis comes across CNBC, right? The marketing marketing (laughs) team is in full force. I know people are, you know, trying to spin up the misperception of risk and volatility, but it was the volatility in the bond market, both last year and even now in this year that really did cause problems at banks. So Dave, you wrote a great article. I think it was specifically around Silicon Valley banks kind of collapse around how they managed their cash flow or even their bond portfolios. Yeah, it was actually a reel on Instagram, which listeners can go, hey, at Monument Wealth Instagram handle, go check out the reel. I set something on fire. If that's not enough to get you to go check out our Instagram, nothing will. And no one was harmed. I'll even throw <laughs> that right in there. Well, I, like I burned my finger. There's a, a bit, tiny but, little yeah. says like, ouch, and you're like, oh, shoot, that was real. That was not <laughs> special effects. <laughs> Playing with fire is dangerous. And I guess if I can segue, right, the banks kind of were playing with fire in a way. So they saw the move in interest rates. And similar to a lot of other people, they had cash that they had on their balance sheet from excess deposits that they invested in bonds. And bonds maybe were at 1% or 2% as the time. As bond yields rise, their price falls. So all those bonds that the banks were buying at 1% or 2% actually ended up losing money. Now, paper losses, and I kind of want to maybe get into that a little bit later, but on paper, it looked like the banks had lost a lot of money from their bond trading. Well, that's their reserves. And banks are required to keep a certain amount of capital in their balance sheets. And that is made up of client deposits, those bond holdings, and various other kind of short-term cash-like investments. Well, when we saw deposits start leaving banks for higher yielding investments or for a variety of reasons, I'll argue it's for the other higher yielding investments, Jessica, like you were mentioning, when cash leaves the banking system to go into money markets and higher yielding treasuries, well, banks have to still be well capitalized and have enough reserves on hands. Now they have to start selling from those bond portfolios, which were at significant losses. Now let's add in the digital era where consumers can, people like us can go on the phone and move money almost instantaneously. You know, you don't have to go line up at the bank and wait for 9 a.m. to withdraw your money. 6.30 in the morning, I can start moving money right there on my phone. So that just sped everything up. So what you saw is bank failures that happened very quickly. You know, I think with Silicon Valley Bank specifically, they had hoped, you know, Thursday was a rough day. They had a lot of deposits outflow and they were very hopeful in telling the government, we can make it through Friday. The amount and the speed of that digital era with just being able to move money just like that, they couldn't withstand those kind of digital bank runs. So that's something that was interesting to me. You know what that sounds a lot like though, Nate? Just want everybody to be ready to be shocked at about what I'm about to say out of my mouth. It sounds like there was not an appropriate plan in place by these banks to create the cash that people needed when they needed it. And if they had had a better risk management or a better plan to create the cash and liquidity when the cash and liquidity was needed, the cash would have been there. And that sounds very similar to, hey, if you can project 12 to 18 months of cash needs, 
and you are appropriately liquidating your portfolio when the market's at a high rather than at a low, that sounds very similar. Always goes back to the cash. Yeah, (laughs) it always goes back to the cash. It seems like they could have benefited from a cash-based financial plan. Listen, I know this is new and revolutionary statement that I'm making out of Monument, but yeah, we need to start marketing that messaging a little bit more. Yeah. So that's really was the biggest surprise to me, right? Is that the banks had a cash flow issue. And for how much we talk about it at Monument, I don't know. That's maybe why it caught me by surprise. Aaron, there's no way you don't have a surprise of the first quarter to share. Well, I, I'm not going to get too far off topic here. Going back to the banks for a second. I mean, this is just classic asset liability mismatch, right? You're borrowing short, you're taking in customer deposits, and you're either lending or investing long. And as you guys have mentioned buying long-term bonds at 1% to 2% in a ultra-low interest rate environment. And not only that, the asset liability committees, the risk committees that Silicon Valley was supposed to have, they didn't have any interest rate hedges or anything of that effect on their portfolio. So yeah, it was just a poor case of risk management. And a lot of people are, are trying to make parallels to this 2008, 2009, the great financial crisis when the banks blew up back then. And it's a completely different phenomenon. You don't have people defaulting on loans, banks that have invested in these these treasuries. It's not like the treasuries have defaulted. This is purely an interest rate phenomenon. And we could say in hindsight that we should have predicted this. Of course, no one did though. But you know, my surprise is this. If you would have told me that we would in 2023 have experienced the second and third largest bank failures in US history, and then told me that we would end the quarter positive with only a 7% drawdown in between, I would have said you were crazy. If you were just looking at a return chart of the S&P, you wouldn't be able to spot necessarily where bank failures were in that, right? So it's been quite surprising to me how resilient things have been. And going back to my comment of, well, hindsight's 2020, we all know that. I'll say it's not completely surprising that Silicon Valley, I'm not gonna say blew up, but something bad happened to them. There's a phrase out there that says, nothing good happens below the 200-day moving average. And if you go look at a big, dumb moving average chart of Silicon Valley, it has been well below that 200-day long-term moving average for going back well over a year. Hadn't even really been flirting with it. So when they eventually had that capital raise, which signaled to the market that, hey, something's afoot and people got wind of it, I don't think anyone could have predicted that they were going to go belly up. But Again, nothing good happens that far below the 200-day moving average. I don't know if my microphone will pick up my keyboard, but I'm typing right now. Write a blog that draws a similarity to bank failures based on asset and liability mismatch with individual investment portfolio management. Done. Done. Okay, got it. My Just ask list. Chad GPT to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Different topic for a different day. <laughs> exactly. I will quickly share the chat GPT story because I was playing with it today. I was like, write me a summary of the first quarter. And it said, sorry, I can't provide any financial information that has happened after September of 2021. So chat GPT isn't putting us out of business. There you go. <laughs> at least today, right, for this sort of stuff. But I will tell you that I was surprised by the huge swing in the first quarter. I already mentioned it, so I won't belabor it. But like that negative eight to a positive seven swing, I wasn't aware. I mean, I don't mean to sound like I wasn't aware, but like it didn't hit me until I read it at the end of the quarter. Like, wow, yeah, okay. That was a big surprise for me. That's a really good point, Dave. Like you can feel something, but the market 
can be totally different, right? And I feel like after 2022, people are very focused still on the negative sentiment of the markets. And it's the old saying, most people feel the pain of losses more than they do the joy of the gains that they get. Okay, time for my favorite question, the so what of this all. So what do we do with all this information? I mean, I think the simple so what is read Dave's upcoming blog about managing cash flow. There you go. <laughs> One more thing on my list. That's that's really kind of the takeaway is it's really an anecdotal story, right? If you look at the banks, as we've been talking about, it's not managing your cash flow in a prudent manner, right? It seemed to be that there were ways that they could have reduced their risk, mitigated the risk, hedged their risk. And as time progressed too, you know, they really didn't take any action to adjust around it. And I think that's really what we need to really focus on from that story is make sure that you understand the difference between risk and volatility, right? The risk in the banks was they would have to sell some of those assets that are at a loss to replenish some cash needs. The volatility really isn't what caused any of the failures, right? If prices go up and down, but they never had to sell the bonds, then essentially there was no losses to be realized. And that's true even in client portfolios too, in some instances, right? Like if you have an individual bond that you're planning to hold till maturity, as long as that company or the government doesn't default, you should be getting your interest payments in principle. In the interim, you might see on your statements swings in that price of that bond based on the interest rate environment. But unless you're going to be selling from that position, you don't need to realize those losses. Those are just paper losses on a statement. So it's being able to survive that volatility and cash planning to get through kind of those choppy and market environments. And that's kind of what I took away, at least from the bank story, which seems to be the big story of Q1 on a lot of people's radars. Yeah, everybody's house prices are worth less than they were six or eight months ago, but you're not selling them. You're not selling your house. What do you care? Yeah, Nate, you bring up a pretty good point, which we could probably do an entire podcast on, which you're bringing up the nuances between duration risk or interest rate risk and credit risk, which is the, of course, the risk that you don't get paid your coupons or your principal back. So that's very important topic. I think we could probably do a podcast on that alone. I'd say this is sort of an evergreen call to arms. Don't be ideological, have an open mind, be willing to admit when you're wrong. And going back and kind of closing the loop on large cap tech, if you're someone who's benefited over the last several years to some sort of a material concentration, and either it be a single name like Apple or Google or any of these other other names that we've we've spoken to, maybe you, you sort of ask yourself, okay, what's enough for me? Because as we talked about, these U.S. large cap tech names and, and QQQ in particular, that ETF up 20% in the first quarter, you've been given sort of a brief respite from the from the drawdowns in 2022. So you may be gifted a little bit of an opportunity to potentially divest of some of those concentrated holdings at a bit higher price level than you than you were able to in 2022. So just consider that. And yeah, my evergreen call is, yeah, don't be ideological, always have an open mind and be able to admit when you're wrong. Yeah, I think to add to what you were saying, Aaron, about is now the time to sell, is now the time, is it enough, is don't let the fear of taxes too hold you back. Because I think we've seen that before where people, they start breaking out the calculator and say, oh shoot, I'm going to have to pay this much taxes on it. I'm just going to continue to hold. And if really though, it's going to help you meet your needs and, and it's the right amount of risk and you don't need to take more, then it is time to sell. You know, Don't push yourself just because you're afraid of paying the tax bill. Yeah. It's the broken record, right? But I will just kind of highlight that by saying, there's a saying, nobody has ever gone broke taking a profit. 
And so back to what Nate and Aaron and Jessica and you were saying, which is like, hey, look, if you have become overconcentrated in these big names, whether it's by choice or just growth, take a look at that and say, did I love my overconcentration in July of 2022? Yes or no. And if you didn't like it back then, and they've come back a little bit, why don't you fix the probability of future disappointment right now while they've recovered? So just a little tip with what to do with the information. All right. Well, before we wrap up, I know you guys really hate this, but I'm going to ask if you have any fun predictions about the market coming up for the next quarter or for the rest of the year. I only hate it if I'm forced to stick to it, right? And I think so. There you go. <laughs> we're, we're not doing a scorecard <laughs> from last time to measure up. So, so <laughs> my prediction will be around the Fed, right? And I think the Fed has been a key topic for years now. And so the Fed remains data dependent. So I will say my prediction will also be data dependent, but I don't believe the Fed will be cutting interest rates in 2023. I mean, the markets are pricing in a cut maybe around November areas when the odds are kind of shifting towards an easing kind of action from the Fed. But I think, you know, the market and the economy really has been resilient. I think, Aaron, you said that earlier. It's been able to kind of take the higher interest rates, yes, with some declines, but really kind of in stride. And you're seeing some slowing, but you're not seeing grinding halts. So I know the markets, specifically the stock market, really does want the Fed to start easing back. But I think by a lot of the actions they've taken to kind of ring fence or shore up the banking system, at least in for the short term or the foreseeable 12 months, really does give them the latitude to raise at least maybe one, two more times. Now, why I say it's data dependent, if all the data comes into a screeching halt, then of course that changes the conversation. And the Fed has said that too, right? They have the flexibility in their own predictions to change them, how the data comes. So if I have to plant my flag anywhere, that's where I will be planting is no cuts in 2023. Yeah. And I'm actually going to come out of left field. I've got two things here. Come out of left field a little bit with a little fun bet with Nate. I'm going to take the other side of that. I've got a two-part prediction. I think the Fed is actually going to cut. We've talked about some data. We talked about some of the layoffs within the tech sector over the last last several months. That's starting to feed through to some other companies if you've been if you've been paying attention to any of the of the headlines. And we're not encouraging people to have CNBC on all the time in the background, by the way. But you're starting to see some layoffs materialize not only in the tech sector, but McDonald's has actually announced some layoffs and as early as this morning, and I know we're sitting here after the end of the quarter, but Walmart this morning has started to announce some layoffs within their warehouse groups. So I think the Fed may be forced to move a little bit sooner than, than Nate, as you pointed out, the market is currently indicating. Fun little bet there. Every time Nate and I do this, it's usually a Jimmy John sandwich. So I'm looking forward to my Jimmy John's. My other prediction is, this isn't really a prediction. This is just sort of a, a statement. I don't think we've seen the last of crypto. This isn't really relevant to us and our clients. It sort of fits into the into the camp of something that you don't have and don't need. But it is definitely a topic, you know, Bitcoin, these other cryptocurrencies, which the CFTC, the SEC, they're still trying to wrangle with this question of what's security and what's a commodity. Like, are some of these cryptocurrencies, these tokens, you know, however you define them, are they securities or are they commodities? And and that's a almost a philosophical debate. But there's been a lot going on within regulation and actions getting handed down from these regulatory groups. So I don't think we've seen the last of crypto. We talked about some first quarter returns. Something we didn't mention was Bitcoin. Bitcoin's up seventy percent 
in the first quarter, which sort of flew under the radar. I'm not sure how a 70% return like that flies under the radar, but given everything that's been going on in the world, especially with interest rates and risk assets more generally, and Bitcoin's up 70%, that's something to keep an eye on. Again, I don't think we've seen the last of, of crypto. Okay, here's my fun prediction, because this is truly just a fun prediction. Okay, ready? Everybody, bolt yourself to your seat. Put both hands on the steering wheel right now if you're driving. Stay focused on the road, because here it comes. I say on December 31st, the S&P 500 has at least a 15% positive return or greater. And here's my emotional rationalization, crystal ball, knowing nothing. I just feel like when you see a market in the first quarter of the year that has a, a minus eight to a 7% swing, so almost a one for one positive to the negative side inside of one quarter, in the face of potentially terrible news, right? Bank failures, president getting indicted, potential for recession, interest rates unclear. I mean, I love your bet, but right, okay, interest rates unclear. And you see a 7% return in the face of that kind. Oh, maybe a government shutdown, right? Okay, all this stuff. And you see a positive 7% return. Something just tells me that like, if there is one piece of freaking good news that comes across the wire, we're going to see people have, and this goes back to what Jessica said, like, I just want a little bit of good news, right? Like, I think that's going to manifest itself into, plus I also, you know, I love the possibility probability. I mean, the probabilities show that this year of the presidential cycle has always got a tailwind associated with it. I like that. And then, okay, I get it that a lot of that 7% return is based on those two big sectors up 20%. Okay. Acknowledged, understood. But again, if you're looking at these windows of time, and I know we're only two days into the second quarter, but the top three performing S&P 500 sectors are, drumroll, pretty much the ones that were the worst returning in the first quarter. It's energy, healthcare, and staples. Now, it's only two days, but I'm just saying, you just never know. And especially when you put these artificial time windows on there, it becomes, but it's still fun to talk about. So that's my prediction. Jessica, you got anything to sign us off with? My prediction is that Monument... Is your prediction that I'm right? You can say Ugh. that. That's allowed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to parking lot that one for a minute. But I mean, I wanted to be right. That sounds fantastic. Take that as you will. My prediction is that Monument continues to be the best wealth management shop in the country and that we're going to be continuing to put out really awesome content. So keep following along. We have some really awesome podcasts coming up planned for this year, particularly relevant to business owners. So if you are a business owner or you know someone in your business owner community, we've got some really awesome stuff planned. I'm really excited about, but also we'll keep having Aaron and Nate on to talk about the markets. Can't ever not talk about the markets. So thank you guys as always for joining us. I'm changing my prediction that you're right. There you go. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. The previous presentation by Monument Wealth Management, LLC, Monument, was intended for general information purposes only. No portion of the presentation serves as the receipt of or as a substitute for personalized investment advice for Monument or any other investment professional of your choosing. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and it should not be assumed that future performance of any specific investment or investment strategy or any non-investment related or planning services, discussion, or content will be profitable, be suitable for your portfolio or individual situation, or prove successful. Monument is neither a law firm nor accounting firm, and no portion of its services should be construed as legal or accounting advice. No portion of this content should be construed by a client or prospective client as a guarantee that he should will experience a certain level of results if Monument is engaged or continues to be engaged to provide investment advisory services. A copy of Monument's current written disclosure brochure discussing our advisory services and fees is available upon request or at monumentwealthmanagement.com.